The presented content does not provide or constitute medical, financial, or legal advice. The content is for information purposes only. Viewing or listening to the content does not constitute a physician-patient, dentist-patient, fiduciary-client, or attorney-client relationship. Welcome to Knowledgeable Aging. I'm your host, Jason Kotar. Joining us today to talk about the purpose and importance of a last will and testament is Lindsay Sarowitz. Lindsay has been with Handler & Levine since 2013. She is an associate with a firm and regularly represents individuals, including federal government employees, in preparing their estate plans consisting of wills, trusts, powers of attorney, healthcare directives, and other estate planning documents. She also represents estates and trustees in regard to descendants' issues, helping guide families through probate and trust administration following the loss of a loved one. Ms. Sarowitz is a member of the Bar in Maryland and the District of Columbia and practices regularly in both jurisdictions. How are you doing today, Lindsay? Hi, Jason. I'm good. How are you? Good. Well, welcome back. This is our third webinar together. So um, thank you for joining us again. I'm looking forward to this, but before we get started, um, for those joining us for the live webinar, if you have any questions, type your questions in. Time permitting, we will do everything in our power to get your questions answered. So Lindsay, let's get started. Sure. What is a last will and testament? Well, Jason, I'm so glad you asked. Um, <laughs> so a last will and testament, um, it's basically, you know, a lot of people know what it is, but have a misunderstanding of what it does, if that makes sense. So um, to expand, a last will and testament is a written document that directs disposition of your assets at your death. That's the simplest way of explaining it. Now, there are other things, of course, that you would say in a will, like who pays taxes, who pays expenses, um, whether you want to be buried or cremated, all these things. But um, in its simplest form, a last will and testament says where you want your assets to go at your passing. Um, so um, I often think of it as an instruction list of what happens in the probate process. Now, it's very important to note there's a common misconception that I want to get rid of right here and now off the bat. So a last will and testament does not create or avoid probate. Again, it's a set of instructions of what happens in probate. So if someone doesn't have a last will and testament, then the laws of intestacy of the state where they die or are living in when they pass away, that's what will control the probate process. Contrast that with if they do have a last will and testament, the will controls where their assets will go, who's going to be in charge, things like that. Does that make sense? If you don't mind, could you explain a little bit about probate then, since you kind of opened that Pandora's box? <laughs> <laughs> sure. So, um, and we will be, I think our next seminar is going, or our next chat is going to be on probate, where we'll dive a little deeper. But on the surface level, probate um, is the, the court oversees the disposition of your assets at your death if your estate goes through probate. So I'll tell you what probate assets are, and then people can know, you know, which part of their estate potentially would go through probate versus wouldn't. And again, next time we'll talk about avoiding probate, stuff like that. Um, but probate controls disposition of your probate assets. Probate assets include assets titled in your name alone without the designation of joint with rights of survivorship. 
Note that if you're married, you may own things as um, tenants by the entireties. That's the same for our purposes as joint with rights of survivorship. Um, and also outside of probate, besides that would be beneficiary designated assets. So any assets like retirement, life insurance, where you designate a beneficiary, or if you have payable on death or transfer on death accounts, all of those will go directly to the person listed versus through probate. So that's kind of a thousand foot view of, of probate. Um, so if you are trying to avoid probate, if that makes sense to you, a lot of people had, have heard of revocable living trusts. Um, and so there's various things that we look to when helping clients determine whether avoidance of probate um, is uh, wise or makes sense for them. Because it's not across the board, everyone needs to avoid probate. And I think people have a misconception about that too. One major consideration that I will say right now, because I know that we broadcast to a very wide audience, um, is that one of the major things we look at is where you are domiciled in determining whether avoidance of probate um, is necessary or wise, because some jurisdictions have a much more difficult, onerous, time-consuming, expensive probate process than others. Gotcha. So then what are the requirements, Lindsay, of a valid will? So yeah, for a will um, to be valid, you, um, you need it to be in writing. It can be handwritten. That's called a holographic will. But sometimes people think that um, they can line out things like they had a will typed up years ago and they're they're deciding they don't want to pay an attorney to fix it so instead they're just going to write their changes and sign and date it's not quite that simple um, interlineations and things like that can actually invalidate a document or uh, just not matter depending on where you write them um, so it doesn't need to be typed or computer generated um, if it's a holographic will, of course, it's important to remember that you need to be legible, right? Your handwriting needs to be legible. Um, other requirements are, uh, you know, there needs to be um, a certain number of witnesses, uh, notaries required. It, the, the legal requirements do depend on the jurisdiction, so I'm not going to, um, you know, lay them out here because it depends, um, but it's really important um, you know, some people think that handwriting a little quick note saying like, I intend this, and I saw one like this recently, so that's my inspiration. Um, I intend this to be my will. I want everything to go to my brother, John Smith, and then sign, date, and think that that's a valid will. That's incorrect, right? So you need to make sure, even if you're not working with an attorney, because an attorney's signature is not essential for a will to be valid, but the other legal requirements um, need to be met. So like different states have a different number of witnesses. Maryland, Virginia, and D.C. all require two. Um, and the witness, you would want to make sure it's not an interested witness. So in certain jurisdictions like D.C., if you have someone who is interested in your estate um, serve as a witness, that can actually 
um, make it so that they don't inherit what you listed in the will. So I'll just give you a quick example. In DC, if you have three children and you decide you want to leave 75% uh, to one child, let's say, and then the other amount split between the other two children, and you have that child that's set to inherit 75% of your will, of your estate serve as a witness, that's what we would call an interested witness. Mm -hmm. And in C, because of that fact that they witnessed your document, um, they will not get the 75% you laid out. Instead, they would get what they are entitled to, in my example, a third of your estate under the laws of intestacy. So I can't stress how important it is to make sure you don't have interested witnesses. Um, as some states require the notarized witness affidavit and things like that, but again, um, you would want to make sure that you know the requirements before writing your will, for sure. So much like we have a Google doctor, there's probably plenty of Google lawyers out there. So the importance really, like you said, is to reach out to an attorney or at least understand the requirements in that respective state that you're living in, right? So if you've got a family member that lives in another state, you need to find out what the what the, the, the guidelines are, the, the laws in that particular state, not where you're living, right? For sure. And also, um, you know, it's important to note that different people have very different situations, right? So talking to someone who wrote their own will um, in, let's say, Maryland without a lawyer who is married and doesn't, you know, all the kids are adults, uh, is looks different than talking to someone who has minor children, for example. So anytime it's really important to know that, you know, your will is going to lay out uh, what we call testamentary trusts. So if you have anyone inheriting from you um, that's a minor, it's important to remember minors can't inherit. So it's essential to go to an attorney and have them create what we call a testamentary trust. A testamentary trust is a trust that springs to existence when you pass away. So let's say you have minor children today when you create it, and you create this trust until they're age 30, let's say. So you say who the guardians are going to be of them in your will and the terms of this testamentary trust in your will. Um, once they reach age 30, and hopefully you're still alive, that testamentary trust, it's just words on a piece of paper. It's essentially gone, even if you haven't updated your documents. Does that, is that clear? So yeah, a lot of, um, people who actually come to us and, and want to do their estate planning, a big driving force is the situation where they have minor children or they have maybe um, adult children that aren't responsible or who have special needs or drug or um, alcohol issues, things like that. So for all those types of people, we would always want to do some sort of testamentary trust laying out who's going to be in charge of the money. So that's the trustee, always having backups for any uh, any people you name, and then how the person is going to get money. So for someone who has, you know, um, uh, mental uh, 
issues or maybe drug issues or alcohol abuse issues, someone like that, you may actually create a trust for their whole life so that they're never in charge of money. Whereas if you have a 21-year-old that you see is on the right path, but maybe you don't want them to get the money yet, we might create a trust until they're 30 so that, you know, maybe they can be a co-trustee and it can be like a walk-along trust or something like that. But say their aunt or uncle is going to be the one who actually has legal control over the money. So what type of trust you create depends a lot on who you're leaving your money to. And it's important to know, Lindsay, as well, that once you have this will and trust, you can change it, right? You can amend this as you go forward. It's not like once you sign it, it's done. Correct. So everything we're talking about right now is revocable and changeable. Even sometimes I get the question um, just last week, a client said, so we're creating a revocable living trust. So that means we can never change it, right? But it's it's the opposite. That's an irrevocable trust. Yep. So it's important to know what you're signing, um, what you're what you're having drafted and signing. So yes, it's not a set it and forget it type thing, estate mm -hmm. planning. I think a lot of people dread doing it and then they finally do it and they think, okay, it's done. I never have to look at it again. But in reality, I always tell my clients, you know, to look at your documents every three years or so. Make sure they still make sense to you. And then have a little checkup with me or whoever your attorney is every five or six years. Um, because you know what changes happen in your life. We know what changes happen in the law. And unless we sit down together, we don't see the other side of it. Yeah. I want to move to the personal representative or executor. What are some of the duties of those folks? Sure. So when we were just talking about um, probate a few minutes ago, and again, we're going to dive a little deeper into this next time, but um, it's it's the personal representative or executor is the person you name in your will to do to handle your estate once you're gone. So one of the very important parts of your will, aside from uh, leaving your assets to someone or people or trusts for their benefit, like we were just talking about, is naming who's going to be in charge of, A, making sure all of those distributions are done according to the will, B, filing everything required by the probate court um, throughout the estate administration, um, C, uh, you know, filing your final tax return. You know, there's a lot of other roles besides the uh, probate. So they would have to, you know, sell your real estate if you have real estate um, and then distribute those funds to an estate account and then to the beneficiaries and everything like that. So it's really important that you pick the right person in your will to fulfill those duties. Again, probate duties as well as other things like uh, filing taxes and stuff like that. Um, so um, the uh, the things that you would want to look at are, you know, uh, who's going to file the initial documents to open the estate with the probate court. In Maryland, it's called the Register of Wills. Um, who's going to do the inventory and accountings with the court, file the final tax return, like I said. And then again, after the court approves everything that needs to be filed in whatever amount of time is required, then the personal representative or executor is going to distribute the funds, whether 
it is outright to individuals or to a trust to someone's benefit, like we talked about. <laughs> Sounds like it's a lot of information for a personal representative. So can you offer some advice to help somebody choose a personal representative? Absolutely. So um, there's two characteristics we generally advise people to look for when choosing a personal representative or really any fiduciary um, in their estate planning. Those um, characteristics are trust and common sense. So a lot of times when I'm doing a seminar and I say trust, a lot of people have a nice long list. And then when I say cut <laughs> right in half, the reason that both are important is, of course, you're putting someone in charge of a lot of things, of basically all of your assets. You need to trust them. Now, is it against the law for them to take your money and use it for their own benefit? Absolutely, but you're giving them access, and it's not like um, anyone is like watching over them, making sure they don't steal the money. Now, the court does oversee things, but it's like if someone misappropriates funds, you know, it's kind of a good luck getting it back situation. Um, certainly, there people have been prosecuted for that and things like that, but you never want to go down that road, right? So. When I have a client that says, okay, I'm going to name my brother, but can he steal all my money? It's like, um, maybe that's not the right person if that's your first thought, right? And then that second component, common, se component, common sense, I say that because they don't need to be a... Um, an attorney, they don't need to be a CPA or a financial advisor or a realtor or anybody like that. They don't have to have any special qualifications. They can hire people like that, like you, like me, like a CPA, to help them with their, those specific um, things that need to be done. But if you name, for example, an attorney as your personal representative, you're paying me my hourly rate not just to give my legal advice and guidance on things that require legal knowledge but you're paying me to open your mail right and and pay every bill and things like that that usually doesn't make sense so as long as someone you trust someone and they have the common sense to say you know i'm filing my final my tax return sorry not final my tax return up oh, i better send mom stuff to the CPA also, you know, that's the common sense component. And it's important to note that the, the personal representative or executor doesn't have to pay out of their pocket, assuming there's funds in the estate, those are all um, estate expenses. So paying an attorney, paying a CPA, paying a realtor, all those sorts of things can come out of the estate. So much like the will can be changed or amended, I assume you can, at some point down the road, change who your personal representative. So if you chose them at this date and five years later when they met with you again, they could they could make that change, right? Absolutely. That's just changing your will um, and and updating who the right person is. Now, I always always advise people to name um, backups. Um, you know, the more the merrier, as far as I'm concerned. If you have five siblings and you trust them all, um, you know, name them one after the other after the other, because 
if one person, if you name just one person, let's say, because you're thinking today that's the right person, well, if 10 years from now they're gone, you're, and then you die after them, but you never updated your documents, that's a bad position to be in, right? It's as if you didn't have it. So um, I always advise naming multiples as backups and also updating, like you mentioned, mm -hmm, when something changes in your life. Yeah. I want to talk about a move forward to some specifics of a will. So if my loved one didn't have any assets but did have a will, does that will need to be filed? So that's a good question. Um, so certainly when someone passes away with assets, with probate assets, again, those are assets titled in your name alone with no beneficiary designation. Um, so I will say just as a side note, oftentimes if their spouses that have maybe been together for a really long time, they didn't have any prior marriages or anything like that, they may very well own everything jointly, right? So um, everything that they can own. So at the first spouse's death, it's very possible that there would be no estate, no probate at all, because everything is going to the surviving spouse, either because they are the joint owner or because they are the beneficiary that is designated. So in that scenario, at the second spouse's death, the will would have to be filed and there would be a probate proceeding. At the first spouse's death, when there's no probate, whether or not the will has to be filed depends wholly on what jurisdiction um, they were domiciled at death. So domicile is residence with intent to remain. So, um, I get into an interesting discussion that I won't get into fully here, but when it comes to someone who moves for care, um, especially in an area like we're in, so I'm in Maryland right now, Virginia is very close and DC is a mile away. Um, so people often move among the three jurisdictions uh, regularly. So if um, I had a family member that lived in Virginia, had Alzheimer's or some sort of uh, incapacity, um, and I moved them to Maryland to be closer to me. They never had the intent to change their domicile. So I would argue that if they die in Maryland after I move them and they don't really have uh, that ability to form that intent, I would argue that they were still a Virginia person. So whether a will has to be filed depends on where that person was domiciled at death. In Maryland, for example, there's a definite requirement that you file the original will with the, again, register of wills. You just basically send it to them. Um, and no probate would have to happen. There might be a couple forms you have to fill out, um, but no probate at all. Um, in DC, so if you don't do that in Maryland, although there's an absolute requirement, there's no like um, punishment for not doing it, I'll say. Um, in DC though, um, there is a statutory requirement that it needs to be filed. And if the person willfully neglects for a period of 90 days after the death of the testator becomes known to him to deliver it to the probate court, um, they can be fined up to 
So there's a lot of a lot of ifs there, right? They have to willfully neglect um, to file it, and they must know about the person's death. So um, if you're in possession of the original last will and testament of someone, they pass away, there's no probate, it's important to figure out um, whether you're required to file it. I always tell people, and this is 100% correct, um, estate planning is something that everyone needs from the time they turn 18 until the time they die. Now, when it comes to, for example, a power of attorney and a medical directive, which we've talked a little bit about in the past, um, you know, that's really essential to do as soon as you turn 18, because your kids, for example, if they're 18, you no longer have any right to access their money, to access their health records, to make medical decisions for them. And I have many stories about the terrible things that can occur if you don't have, if they don't have this document. When it comes to the will, it's a little different, right? Most 18-year-olds don't have significant assets, although I have, I do have clients that do. Their parents set them up nicely. And um, but so, you know, a lot of people don't think about wills until maybe they get married or they have their first child. Um, some people put it off for a really long time, right? And so what I would caution people against is um, putting it off because they don't want to think about it or they don't want to talk about it. So there is no magic number aside from that, the second you turn 18 thing that I said, um, which is the ideal scenario. Um, I have a lot of clients that bring their kids in right before they go off to college and we sign these documents. Um, and that is really the, the A answer, I'd say. What's the time frame, Lindsay, from the moment they reach out to an attorney to the time that the will is completed? Well, uh, that's that's an interesting question. Um, so that is primarily dependent on the client. Okay. So these um, cases where I mentioned where my clients reached out to me and they're ill and we did a rush job, it's been like a week. I think in one case for the signing I'm doing today, where we were able to at least do her power of attorney and healthcare directive, um, I think I drafted it in two days. Um, so that's, and she's coming in today. So, um, but a lot of times I'll draft the documents, which will take maybe two, three weeks, right? In the typical scenario. And then the clients might not get back to me for a really long time. And I can send them reminders without being pushy and things like that, but I have had a few cases where it'll be over a year before they actually come and sign their documents. That's something I can't control, although it's not the best idea still. At least you started the ball rolling, but if you never sign the documents, you might as well have never have done them. Last question, Lindsay. So if somebody's watching this, if you had one, one thing to tell them about, if they're on the fence about doing a will, what would you say to them? Kind of what I just said, you know, just sit down with somebody. I mean, right now, at least for us, it's easier than ever to, to sit down with us. You don't even need to leave your living room. We're doing all of our initial estate planning consultations on Zoom or a similar platform. Um, if you're not comfortable with Zoom, we can do phone, we can do FaceTime, Microsoft Teams. Um, so really, it takes, let's say, an hour of your time if you sit down with someone like me where we don't charge for the initial consultation, 
time is the only thing it's taking. Now, you should find out ahead of time some attorneys do charge for the initial consult, so you should know going in whether you're going to be expected right. to pay, but really just um, my biggest piece of advice is for really everything, it's so important to know and to be informed, right? So unfortunately, I can't tell all of your viewers, you know, exactly what they need because I don't know anything about them. Um, but if you sit down with someone or Zoom with someone or whatever, they can figure that out. A lot of attorneys um, will have a questionnaire, so you can send that in ahead of time. If they don't have one, you're welcome to use ours. I'll tell you our website when we're closing and you can just go on there, pull out the questionnaire and you can even look like on our website, just give it a gander and, and see what escape plan even is. Maybe the things I've talked about, we've talked about today are totally foreign to you. We have a lot of FAQs, we have those questionnaires, we have things like that that could maybe provide some baseline understanding um, because it's nothing to be afraid of, like anything else. You know, if I step into your field, you know, I will have no idea what I'm doing. I'm gonna need someone to mentor me, to guide me, to teach me, right? And this is the same sort of thing. So if you look and you say, oh my gosh, I have no idea what this website's talking about, or I have no idea what Lindsay just said, you know, that's why you sit down and you meet with someone because it's our job to educate our clients. You know, I'm never going to do documents for someone and say, okay, this is what you need. Just go ahead and sign it, right? I need to educate you so you know um, what decisions you're making because it's ultimately up to the client to make those decisions. Excellent. Well, great stuff, Lindsay. So how can people find you? Well, um, so you can um, go um, online i'm with handler and levine llc that's spelled h-a-n-d-l-e-r and levine l-e-v-i-n-e l-l-c our website is that without the end so handlerlevine.com again that's h-a-n-d-l-e-r L-E-V-I-N-E.com. And you can always email me. Um, my email address is Lindsay, spelled L-I-N-D-S-E-Y at handlerlevine.com. Again, no end in there. Um, and my phone number is 301-961-6464. And I'm at extension 3315. So we're physically located in Bethesda. Um, I'll have to update my bio with you, Jason, because I was just sworn into the Virginia bar last week. So uh, congratulations. Thank you. I can help people in Maryland, D.C. and Virginia uh, with their estate planning and then on the other side of things with estate administration. So feel free to shoot me an email if you have any questions about what we talked about today or anything in general. I really love teaching about this stuff, so I'm happy to talk to anybody. Well, good. Uh, we have not set the date for the probate webinar, but we're thinking maybe the end of April, early May. So I encourage anybody that's listening today to check out the Knowledgeable Agent website, sign up to our newsletter, uh, we'll, or just go on our web, website and check out the upcoming webinars, and, or reach out to Lindsay directly and say, come on, Lindsay, let's get this thing going. So as far as Knowledgeable Aging, you can find us on our YouTube page. All of our webinars are updated there, usually four to five times a week. I encourage you to subscribe. Um, if you are a podcast listener, you can find us on Spotify, iTunes, etc. Till next time, I'm your host, Jason Kotar, and this is Knowledgeable Aging.